This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good morning and welcome to RAND's Call with the Experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at RAND. Joining me for today's call are RAND's President and CEO, Michael Rich, and RAND political scientist, Jennifer Cavanaugh. Just yesterday, they published a report titled Truth Decay, an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. Michael, let's start with the basics. Where does that term truth decay come from and what does it mean? Well, Jeff, I've been worried about the diminishing role that facts and analysis play in American public life for at least 15 years. I gave my first speech on the subject in 2005, and for many years, my concern was centered on RAND. RAND is an organization, of course, that stands for the proposition that the best way to solve complex public policy problems is to start with facts and to develop and evaluate options with rigorous analysis. Were you calling it truth decay at that time? Not, no, no, I uh, start using the term truth decay until about uh, two years ago. Okay. Uh, but my concern was that if our leaders in Washington uh, weren't going to make decisions that way with uh, the best available evidence, what did it portend for RAND? But I soon realized that the problem had ramifications far beyond the ones it had for RAND. And so about two years ago, I began using the term truth decay to describe what I was seeing. Uh, and it was a term suggested by one of our RAND colleagues, Sonny Efron. Hmm. And I like the term for two reasons, at least. One is that decay describes a process and not an end state. And I think that's important because if we're going to combat a problem, we need to understand uh, how we got to where we are, how the problem developed. And, and so what, what has brought about this decay? Well, um, there were three main causes, the enormous change in the information landscape that's including both changes in traditional media, the industry of traditional media such as broadcast and cable TV and newspapers, and also the rapid introduction of social media platforms. Second, our inability of our education systems to keep pace with those changes, so more specifically the failure to impart the required skills to be a discerning consumer of information to distinguish back from opinion, sound analysis, from bad analysis. And finally, a rapid increase in polarization. And here we, we um, talk not just about political or partisan polarization, but social and demographic polarization as well. So the, those are the things that have brought about truth decay. So what is truth decay itself? Is it, is it the same as fake news? Uh, it's not. Uh, fake news is a symptom, perhaps a manifestation of truth decay, but, but uh, the way we uh, analyze the problem, truth decay is actually much more. It's the growing disagreement about objective facts and well-established analytical interpretations or mm -hmm. conclusions, the blurring of the line between fact and opinion, the explosion of the volume, and therefore we think the influence of opinion relative to fact, and then the decline in public trust in major institutions that were once regarded as authorities when it came to facts and accuracy. If fake news were to disappear, uh, we uh, still have uh, the problems that, that we outline in this report. You said a few things there about opinion and that there's been, there's more opinion and that it's crowding out news. Is opinion evil or bad inherently? No, no, of course not. Um, and uh, we know that when decision makers have to come to a conclusion about a course of action, they're going to use uh, professional judgment, take into account political considerations and so 
we've always found at RAND that it's always best to begin with facts, and that's how RAND has made its name for itself. It's the best way to, uh, to tackle complex problems. And in fact, that's the way that businesses, that's the way the military, it's the way that medicine uh, goes about uh, tackling the complex problems in those fields. So those fields seem to be even relying more, possibly. Well, that's one of the, the paradoxes that we've noted, that while there seems to be a diminution of the role of facts and analysis in uh, certain slices of American public life, mainly national policymaking, in most other walks of life, the trends are going in exactly the opposite direction, uh, more reliance on data, uh, more reliance on sophisticated analytical methods. And that's true even in baseball. Uh, so um, it's, a, it's a paradox, uh, but it's also, I think, some reason for optimism down the road that the forces that have led to that kind of decision-making in so many different fields may possibly be harnessed to, um, to attack this problem in American public life. Okay, good to hear. Maybe before we look ahead, look, look back a little. Uh, Jennifer, you've been studying uh, this phenomenon now for the better part of a year. Can you talk a little about how long this phenomenon has been in place and have we seen this phenomenon in the past? I'll answer that two ways. The first is to say that the period that we focus on in this report is really over the past two decades. So we don't think it's something that just started in the past year or even the past two years. Um, and certainly it predates the current administration and even the administration before that. Um, and that, so our conception of the problem is, is sort of broad. And as Michael said, it's a trend. That's why it's called truth decay um, and not something else. Um, but we also did some historical analysis to look back in time to see whether or not we've seen anything like this before in the past. Um, so we focused on three specific periods. Uh, the first was the 1880s to 1890s. The second was the 1920s to 1930s. And the third was the 1960s to 1970s. How did you pick these periods or did your research just lead you to those periods? Well, I did kind of a broad survey of American history and tried to look for periods where there seemed to be evidence um, or seemed to be uh, similar trends to the ones that we are observing today. Um, and so in each one of those there's um, things jumped out at me. So if you look at the 1880s, 1890s, the obvious parallel between fake news and yellow journalism made me want to investigate that period further and find out, is there evidence of these other four trends that we consider as part of truth decay in that same period? Same thing in the 1920s, 1930s with the rise of radio and what they called trash journalism, which was basically tabloid style journalism that told sensationalized stories of sex and violence. And then in the 1960s to 1970s, um, you have the rise and the spread of television, as well as what was called new journalism, which again was journalism that uh, promoted subjective opinion over facts. So these really jumped out at me as periods that were more similar. And so I wanted to understand whether these trends were, were whether all four trends were apparent in these other periods as well. And what we found was that we could find evidence of three of the trends in each of the periods, those being the blurring of the line between fact and opinion, the increase in the relative volume of opinion over fact, and declining trust in institutions. But what we didn't see, based on our analysis thus far, was any evidence that in the previous period there was this outright disagreement about objective facts and interpretations of those facts. So that's pretty interesting to us because it means that even though this period may be similar to things that we've seen in the past, uh, there are things that are distinctive about it, and we were interested in understanding why. Did you 
look at go back even further than the 1890s? Did you go back to see if this was happening in the 1700s? So certainly there are parallels um, even before um, the 1890s. Uh, people point to you know things like the rise of the printing press as a big change in the way information spread um, that has some of the same dynamics. We looked back into like the 1860s where you see some of this. But obviously we couldn't, you know, cover every single period that looks similar. And one of the things that we'd like to do going forward is to do kind of a history of truth decay in the United States and start all the way back at 1776, as well as to dig more deeply into the periods that we looked at. But certainly I believe it is something um, that we may have seen in certain forms before the 1880s. So you mentioned the common features in each era. Was there also a common exit strategy? Was there, was there a common reason why uh, we came out of the phenomenon each time? So each one's a little bit different, but there are some similarities. Um, those similarities tend to focus around a movement, um, often within journalism or within government or a popular movement, to reinsert facts into the dialogue. Um, so that can take the form of the rise and spread of investigative journalism, like the muckrakers or what we saw in the 1970s, the early 1970s. It can take the form of increased transparency and accountability in government, either an internal movement to increase those things or a focus on increasing data and policymaking, which is what we saw after the Great Depression in the 1930s. Um, so we do see those similar trends, um, this emphasis on transparency and accountability as well as investigative journalism. And so um, we'd like to look into those responses more heavily and see whether moving towards that direction now might be something that could help address the problems that we're observing. Maybe turning back to Michael, everything we're hearing about truth decay sounds bad. Are there any actual real-world effects from it? What are, are we suffering in some way? Well, start with political paralysis, uh, which I think uh, can be traced in large part to the increasing disagreement about facts and the attempt to solve problems without agreeing first on what the factual setting is. Then you have the risk of bad decisions based on uh, decisions made more on opinion and anecdote than on fact and analysis. The inability to sustain a long-term attack on a difficult problem. We know that many policy problems that we confront uh, require uh, a sustained attack over many, many years, and um, the inability to agree on uh, a set of facts and analytical findings uh, works against that sustained attack. And then you have alienation and disagree uh, and uh, disengagement from the political process, alienation of citizens and disengagement uh, by the What's wrong with that? You end up, I think, seeing the low voter turnout rates, um, the lack of informed judgments about candidates and issues, uh, because people lose confidence in the ability of government to confront problems and solve them. And then, of course, from both the inside perspective in the United States, but also from the outside, you have uncertainty about uh, the policy direction in the United States and even the stability of certain policy uh, stances. And so I think the, the, cause, the uh, consequences of truth decay are, are um, broad, numerous, and they're very serious. And, and that's one of the reasons we're so concerned. Michael, uh, you mentioned that some of these factors are working to create truth decay for us. But one that uh, Jennifer mentioned was investigative journalism, for example, which we seem to be some resurgence of today. I don't know if either of you think that this means we are already turning some some corner in the current phenomenon? 
Possibly. That's been, as Jennifer pointed out earlier, that's been key to some of the improvement in conditions in earlier periods when some of the same trends that we see today existed. And we do see pockets of of shining examples of that kind of journalism and the best tradition of investigative journalism. But I think it's too early to tell, and there's a lot more that needs to be done uh, beyond that. I would also say that something that I think is missing, at least that I've seen now, is a really widespread movement um, from the ground up demanding facts. And I, I haven't seen that in all areas of, of society. There's how how, how would that manifest itself? People rejecting journalism that isn't based on fact instead of continuing to consume it. You know, there, there's there's both a supply side and a demand side to this problem. On the supply side, we have, you know, some media companies that may produce information that is misleading or filled with misinformation, and that could be countered by other media companies that really focus on hard-hitting, deep investigative journalism. Um, but if you don't have the demand on the bottom for that information, people who are willing to sit down and read a deep investigative journalism and are willing to kind of vote with their money and vote with their feet and uh, turn away from media companies that don't provide that information. If you don't have mm-hmm. that, I think the problem cont- continues to proliferate. We we do see that some traditional media circulation figures are going up pretty dramatically. In the New York Times, Washington Post, certainly, but also Facebook and other social media, and cable uh, news, cable news are seeing rises as well. So mm-hmm. maybe uh, there's there's consumption all around. I mean, in, in fact, maybe that gets to one of the uh, potential remedies that is in your report, which is uh, civic education. Do, do citizens have the tools they need to deal with this onslaught of media that they're, they're, they're getting everywhere all the time? Clearly not. Uh, the changes in the information landscape have uh, come quickly and they've been profound, but changes in the way that we teach people to consume information haven't changed hardly at all, and in some cases the, the changes have been uh, in, in the wrong direction, crowding out of civics education, failure right. to add uh, training in critical thinking, uh, training in how to interpret statistical facts and statistical analysis. So one of the continuing lines of research is to identify those pilot programs that have been cropping up uh, to try to educate people in media literacy in different ways and and evaluate what works and and what's cost-effective. And one of the points we make in the report is it's not just a kindergarten through 12 education problem. It's a problem at all levels of society. So one response is to increase media literacy and civic education in schools and colleges. But a whole even more difficult problem is how do we reach people who are out of school what kinds of community outreach can we use to teach adults better media literacy and to reinstill uh, civic engagement and civic values within people who are already out of school? And there are options for that, such as piggybacking on financial literacy programs or using other types of community forums. Um, but that's a, that's an even harder challenge, I think, than Rand, just addressing the Rand actually does some consumer financial literacy work. Is there some... Synergy to be had here? Possibly. That's one of the things that we're considering in some of the work that we're doing now. What are some other potential remedies here? I mean, I'm not sure anyone who's uh, on the call yet has read all 300-plus pages, but are there other specific remedies that we call for? Do we have the, the magic bullet here for solving this issue? No, I mean, I don't think there is one magic bullet. First of all, I think it's a really complex problem that's going to require many solutions. And 
it's a problem that reaches into many different parts of society. So we're going to have to have uh, many different responses to each one of those parts. Second, I think there's a lot that we really don't know yet. That's one of the things the report tries to highlight is not only to highlight the evidence that we do have of how different factors interact, but also to highlight what we still need to know in order to develop solutions that we think um, could be effective. And so that's what strategy and plan that we lay out in the final chapter tries to do is to identify some of these areas where we really need more information, but where there's a potential for solutions. And so one example I would give was would be alternative models for funding media companies. Mm -hmm. um, are there ways that philanthropic funding, not necessarily on, on the scale of an NPR, but funding provided to media companies just to focus on investigative journalism or just to um, uphold a set of standards that are agree agreed upon by the entire community? Are there ways that public funding could help fill some of those gaps that appear to have been emerging? And so we don't know whether those things would work or how we would implement them, but that's something worth looking into. So that's just one example. An approach agreed to by the entire community. That sounds tricky. Well, it sounds that. tricky, but maybe maybe there are some set of basic common principles that would work. Let's turn to the phones. And we do have a question coming from the line of Mary Peters. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much um, for this call and the report. What role do you think social media has played um, in, in advancing this truth decay? Well, so, I mean, I think, I think social media has played a big role. Um, we focus on changes in the information space broadly to include changes in social media. And I think social media would, would fall in the, in the driver's category. There are several reasons. The first is um, that it contributes to this just massive increase in the scale and scope of information flow. So it proliferates opinions um, and contributes to the extent to which opinions drown out fact. A lot of the stuff on Twitter or other social media feeds is really based on opinion and personal experience. It's not fact-based. The other reason that social media is concerning and contributes to this problem is that there is research that's shown that um, social media is one of the primary feeders to what are called fake news sites, which are sites that consistently publish verifiably false information. So not only is our social media platforms proliferating opinion, but they're funneling users towards other sites that proliferate even more false information. You know, so those are just two ways that I think social media contributes to this problem. Did the recent tweaks to the Facebook modeling have any effect on this issue, do you think? Uh, not really, because... You know, one of the things that we talk about in this report as a driver is cognitive bias. And one of the ways that cognitive bias influences the way that human beings process information is that we rely heavily on our social networks and our friends and family, even if our friends and family are wrong. So by increasing the prominence of my friends and family's posts on my social media feed, it's just going to further... More of an um, echo chamber? Yeah, it's going to further the echo chamber of my friends and family beliefs and decrease the extent to which I am exposed to external conflicting views. So I, I understand that maybe Facebook is trying, but I don't think that this is the solution. Maybe just go back to some of the other remedies that discussed. Are there any that, that we're missing here, others that you think could be helpful? Well, the the current line of research, we're, we're continuing to do research on a variety of the, uh, the problems that we identified in the report. And one of them involves developing a framework for evaluating immediate literacy programs. Mm. Uh, it's unclear at what age those should be introduced. It's unclear how long those need to run, whether those need to, whether you can apply the same kind of approach to adults. 
and uh, th that clearly is going to be at the heart of the response on the demand side to mm -hmm. train people to operate effectively in our democracy given the changes in the information landscape. Both made a lot of comments about additional research that we may want to undertake. Who is funding this research and why? Well, it's a good question, uh, Jeff. It's not obvious there's a evident client in the traditional RAND client base of public sector agencies. Fortunately, we have donors who share our passion for uh, solving problems on the basis of rigorous analysis, and we use the unrestricted funds of our donors to underwrite this first uh, step in the research plan. Is this and a few particular donors? Or? Some of our donors direct their gifts to specific policy areas such as health or work on the Middle East and so on. That's very valuable because those are important areas for us. But most of our donors put no restrictions on their gifts, and that enables us to uh, launch analyses and extend analyses on topics that uh, may be more cross-cutting, uh, more distant into the future, sometimes even, you know, controversial like this one. And that's how we funded this research and how we're funding the, the several projects that we're doing as follow-ons, uh, our un unrestricted gifts. And we're very, very appreciative to those donors. All right, very good. Uh, maybe a little detail about projects that you have underway or that you're considering. Maybe Jennifer? Sure. So we have three smaller projects underway that are attempting to execute pieces of this agenda. The first is looking at how media content has changed over time. So we have a perception that uh, news has become more opinion-based and more partisan over time, but we don't really have good data that tells us that. Um, and we need that data in order to understand how truth decay has affected the information that we consume, um, which types of media may, may this effect be the greatest. And this, will, this information can allow us to develop responses. And so what we're doing is we're collecting a body of textual data from newspapers, news magazines, TV transcripts, and digital journalism. And we're using a software called RANDLEX, which RAND developed to do natural language processing. And For what purpose? Why was this? Why was that software developed? Um, well, it was originally developed to analyze Twitter data specifically to understand how terrorist groups use um, social media to communicate and recruit. But it's really a very uh, it's a useful tool that can be used more broadly to do any kind of natural language processing, which allows us to understand how the tone, content, and types of language that mm -hmm. have been used over time in these different media have changed, and also compare across media to understand how. Um, language used in television may be different from language used in print journalism. So that's one project. The second one is focusing on media literacies, which we've already talked extensively mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is fill some of the gaps that Michael brought up before, specifically to gather data on all the different types of programs that are currently ongoing, the types of markets that they reach, their characteristics, uh, what do their curricula include, and then develop a framework for evaluating them. So we're not actually going to conduct the evaluation in this project, but we are going to figure out what on what grounds should they be evaluated and what are the things that a media literacy curriculum should have. So we're basically taking the first step towards doing an evaluation and development of a different curriculum or better um, or synthesized curriculum. And then the third project is looking at trust in institutions, which we mentioned as one of the four trends of Truth Decay. And what we're going to do there is look into which institutions have lost trust, which institutions have um, gained trust or been able to retain trust, and there's pretty good data on that. 
and then try to understand why we see these different trends. Why have certain institutions lost trust? Why have other institutions been able to retain trust? Can you give us a few, a couple of quick examples of institutions that have lost or gained trust? Yeah. So the the best examples of institutions that have lost trust are basically all branches of the federal government and all types of media. Uh, the <laughs> so that's the bad news. Yeah, that's the bad. The good news is that some institutions have been able to retain trust. One example would be public schools. Um, another would be science as an edu- institution, which is interesting. So not scientific findings, mm. but science as an institution has been able to change trust. And the only example of an institution that's gained trust is the military. And so what we'd like to do is look at these different trends and understand what are the characteristics of in, of the institutions that have lost trust? Why have they lost trust? What are the different characteristics of institutions that have been able to retain and increase trust? And are there lessons that we can learn to help rebuild trust in those institutions like the government and the media which have lost trust? So that's the third project. And the fourth project, which we're really just getting started, is going to use the American Life Panel, which is a longitudinal survey with 6,000 participants that RAND um, conducts. We're going to use this to get a better, to ask some questions about the types of sources people look to for information, the types of sources that they think are most reliable, and also how willing they are to look at sources that they that they know will provide them information that does not conform to their beliefs. So basically testing out this, the confirmation bias, and the extent to which people are unwilling to start, seek out information that um, does not affirm their beliefs. And so we're, we're kind of looking to see, like, to what extent is that true and what different types of people have different beliefs. So we have a lot of work to do. Yes, we have a lot of work to do, and those are only, like, four projects out of many, many more that we'd like to do. So Why don't we turn to the phones? And we have a question coming from the line of Stephen Robinson. Please go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, my question is that it seems that most of the discussion has revolved around what I would call homegrown truth decay or what's endemic to the United States versus truth decay that would be influenced by uh, foreign entities, the most glaring example being Russia, and a lot of it involving hacking, which is, I would say, a, in a way, a different kettle of fish from what we've been discussing. Could you speak to that and how it would be similar or different and how the approach to uh, helping to solve that would be uh, different? Yeah, Steve, maybe we'll uh, we'll each take a, a crack at this. Um, the report, um, uh, first of all, introduces um, a, a taxonomy of terms that we hope will help guide discussion about this issue and sort of clarify thinking and action going forward. And it makes a clear distinction between misinformation and disinformation or propaganda. And, of course, your question concerns the latter. There's a section in the report that focuses on disinformation, including propaganda that is created and used by foreign actors, including Russia. We also have a separate line of research at RAND that's begun publishing results on Russia propaganda strategy. In fact, one of the the most downloaded reports over the last 18 months is called Firehose of Falsehoods, and it's an excellent summary of the techniques that Russia has used for decades to change outcomes and influence public opinion in various countries, Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, as well as the United States. And uh, we summarize that, uh, those findings in, in our report. 
Um, and, the, you know, the agency section also focuses on some other agents that we think contribute to the problem. So it's not just foreign actors that we think are contributing to the problem, but also act, uh, actors within the political sphere, certain media companies. So we highlight all the ways in which these different agents both intentionally and unintentionally proliferate truth decay. Um, so just to give you an example, when we talk about research in academia, we talk about the role of things like the tendency to not publish non-findings, the pressure to publish, which can often push researchers to use poor research methods, and also the issue of money funding research and the extent to which um, certain organizations, the research agenda and often the research findings can be biased based on who's funding that research. And so these are the types of things that we try to draw out as feeding into truth decay. So, you know, we don't see truth decay as something that's happening to us, but something that is occurring and has both autonomous and um, intentional aspects. I recommend uh, downloading Firehose of Falsehoods. It's not a long report. It's, it's in our perspective series, and it emphasizes the futility of trying to respond one by one to uh, Russian disinformation uh, efforts because of the fire hose theme. Uh, they emphasize quantity. Uh, more effective is uh, prophylactic techniques for warning audiences of misinformation and educating audiences about the techniques that Russia uses. Uh, that's been more effective in the settings we've examined. Do we uh, have another caller? We do. Our next question comes from the line of Michael Tenenbaum. Please go ahead. Thank you. The most important jobs in our country, political leadership, are biased toward lying to get elected. And you can't sell insurance and get away with that. If you agree with these facts, instead of more uh, research along the lines uh, that, that might be indicated, what action plan could there be to rescue us? Thank you. Well, the accountability uh, for elected leaders is in the election process itself. And the, Jennifer pointed out earlier that uh, we don't have yet an electorate that seems motivated to hold politicians, elected officials accountable for the truth and accuracy of their statements. And that, I think, is one of the targets that uh, an education initiative would, would adopt. We don't know exactly how that would work, but I, I don't see how to succeed without that. What if we were to criminalize lying in a political process? Uh, there may be some abridgment of, of freedom of speech. I think it's rough justice. Um, you can't sell insurance and lie about it. So I think that one of the things that we're trying to do with this report is emphasize the importance of facts and the consequences of ignoring them. Um, and we're hopeful that by promoting, you know, by by really drawing out the, the real-world consequences of ignoring facts um, and the other things that result from truth decay, we can begin to open people's eyes to the fact that um, the consequences of truth decay and of lying are not just ph philosophical or theoretical. They actually impact people's economic life, their national security. And certainly, you know, not everyone is going to read the entire report, but we're working on derivative products that we hope can reach different audiences. Because I do think that the solution to this has to be bottom up. I don't, well, well certainly criminalizing lying is an appealing solution or an easy, you know, silver bullet solution. I don't think that there's really much appetite for rewriting First Amendment law at this point. So 
Um, I think that we're trying to think about, you know, incentives that we could use in the media market to encourage media companies to to provide more uh, fact-based information in their journalism rather than regulatory responses. Do, Michael, a variation of the health insurance experiment and, and set up different communities with different rules about lying in social media and traditional media? You know, that method of making policy has gone out of favor, except in the military. What Jeff's question refers to is the series of very large-scale, lengthy social experiments that were initiated during the Nixon administration, and they provide an unmatched basis for making sound policy decisions. Rand was involved in one involving the design of health insurance, another uh, the design of housing allowances uh, or vouchers. There was a, yet another involved in school vouchers. Unfortunately, it requires a commitment of time, a commitment of resources, and especially a suspension of your preconceived notions. And uh, people need to wait for the results of that analysis. Mm-hmm. And truth decay has eroded uh, that kind of decision-making. But you're right, experimentation uh, for some of these difficult problems is is sensible and, and fortunately the military still uses it. Well one of the one of the ways that we can do experimentation now with less cost and get around some of the obstacles is to use something like the ALP to do kind of experimentation through a survey. The American Life Panel. American Life Panel. The American Life Panel, right, which I mentioned previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do a survey, to do experimentation through survey, to give people different scenarios and say how you would how would you respond here, how would you respond mm-hmm. here. The other way that we can do that is to use a gaming methodology. So gaming is big in the military community to do war games, to simulate what would happen in a battle and get a sense of what types of decisions people would make under different conditions. And we're, we're trying to think with the gaming center here at RAND um, ways in which that type, of, th- that type of methodology could maybe be applicable to a political arena and understand like are there different kind of institutions or different kinds of policy responses that we might be able to work towards that would change people's incentives and the way decisions are made. So um, that's something that we're just really getting started, but we are interested in trying to bring in kind of an experimental flavor to some of the work that we're going to do. Great question, Michael Tenenbaum. Email question from Addison Fisher. Because social media so regularly reveals flaws, imperfections, and lies in people's lives, does this lead to a general malaise in everyone's view of the general state of integrity among the population as a whole, and our leaders in particular, thus leading to a universal laxness and disrespect for the importance of truth and overall morality? I think that goes a bit further than we did in the report. We talked about alienation and disengagement in some detail from the political process, but I think Addison's thoughts are natural extensions of the kinds of trends that we've seen, and that would be even make this uh, set of factors even more worrisome from my perspective. Well, I think it goes to the, the demand side issue that we were speaking about before. And I think that one of the points we try to make in the report is that there does seem to be a decreased demand for facts and facts-based information. Um, I don't think we directly address morality um, in the report because we really did try to stick to um, like a more pure empirical foundation. But, you know, I would say that there does seem to be a decreased reliance on facts and certainly, you know, falsification of information on social media, on Facebook profiles and things like that mm-hmm. would fit into that. The question we haven't had yet is to what extent is our research looking at perhaps the 
current administration? Do we view this as being a partisan phenomenon in some way? Is the problem more serious on one side of the aisle than on the other? Well, it's it's tempting to um, think of the problem in that specific way. But unfortunately, we concluded it, it would be misguided, that uh, this is not a phenomenon that is limited to one of our political parties or one section of the country uh, or one age group, uh, certainly not one politician. I mean, in my mind, it's kind of similar to a concern about our, our health care system. That we're not going to address the root causes of our problems by singling out the Surgeon General or a past Surgeon General. It's just it's a much more systemic set of, of challenges that we have. Jennifer mentioned that we believe the current trends go back at least two decades, and we've certainly seen one of at least the, the first trend that we talk about, the reduction in the agreement about facts and scientifically established findings as cutting across party lines. And uh, we give several examples of that in the report, one of them being the faith in the safety or the belief in the safety of vaccinations. And um, that um, decline in trust in vaccines it doesn't track with party lines or ideological standing. Do you, do you have any other examples of things you looked at, like vaccinations, that where you're seeing this divergence between what's agreed by scientists and what the populace is accepting? Yeah, another example we give is the safety of genetically modified foods for human consumption. So 11% of scientists, only 11% of scientists disagree that GMOs are safe for human consumption. But the percentage of average Americans in survey respondents when asked whether GMOs are safe or unsafe for human consumption, in the early 2000s, it was about 25% of Americans said that they thought GMOs were unsafe. And in 2015, that number was at 57%. So that's a pretty, um, not only a big increase among the American population and the disagreement in the sense that uh, GMOs are unsafe, but also a widening of this gap between the scientific consensus that's based on increasingly sound and rigorous evidence and the popular perception of the extent to which these genetically modified foods are safe to consume. Great. Let's go to the phones. Our next question comes from the line of Joe Sullivan. Please go ahead. Hi, Michael. Great and thoughtful piece of work. How do you think about the evolution of the self-perceived role of the media in bending or emphasizing various elements or changing the texture of what they're reporting in response to this. So it's really a question of how more traditional media responds to this onslaught, and are they seeing their higher calling at a, at a point where they feel they've got to kind of stretch a bit, and uh, that creates this sort of a insidious uh, loop, if you wish, between the traditional media outlets and those who are promulgating this. Well, the report, uh, Joe, goes into considerable detail about the changes in the economic structure of the traditional media business and how that's caused changes in the content of the information that they provide. The, there's evidence of the blurring of the line between fact and opinion in traditional media, uh, just like in social media, and there's also evidence of um, a vastly increased quantity of opinion relative to fact. In one of our discussions during the research phase of our work, a very senior 
journalist um, made an observation that when she began her career, she was initially a reporter uh, and then a columnist, a commentator, and then an editor. And those were distinct roles. And people who knew her knew her by the role that she was playing. And her observation now is that virtually every reporter also blogs, also tweets. Many of them opine on panels, televised panels. And so... Uh, uh, yes, and so their their roles are are blurred, and we haven't trained people to distinguish uh, when a journalist is acting as a reporter, journalist is acting as a commentator. There are some analogs to this in the printed tr- traditional printed uh, media as well. Uh, the New York Times has, I think, a feature called News Analysis uh, that runs kind of in the midst of the of the news stories. It's a combination of uh, informed opinion or something like that. But it's not clear uh, to us that the readers of the New York Times make the distinction between straight reporting and the mix of reporting and opinion. We have other examples of that in uh, in the report. And so those are going to have to, I think, be areas that are going to have to be straightened out by, the, by traditional media. At the same time, we're educating and training consumers of information to make these critical distinctions. Joe, did you have a follow-up there? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I'm just wondering, Michael, that's really helpful. I'm just wondering whether one could propose in the tagline of any story where they list the name of the reporter, there's just in paren, in the role of commentator, in the role mm-hmm. of editor, in the role of whatever, uh, come up with three general phrases that allows the reader to understand the context of thought that's going on and really reminds the reporter or writer of the context of what they are saying. And I guess that's and, also presuming uh, that they can wear the three different hats and, 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 and change the Well, but at least it would suggest mm-hmm. certain self-recognition mm-hmm. on the part of the media channel as well as the reporter and certainly the audience. I mean, it's... It, you know, it would have to be thought through and refined mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. But, but it, it just you, you just frame three interesting buckets, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it won't be perfect, but it would at least put that into the conversation. So at least uh, a little more transparency. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just a thought. Yeah, it's a it's a good idea. You know, I, I've I've um, sort of mused along the way that uh, when I was growing up, uh, television news consisted of about two hours of coverage a day. And now, yeah. of course, it's 24 hours, and there has not been a 12-fold increase in the amount of reporting or the amount of reported facts. Most of that additional time is been fil- has been filled up by opinion and repetition of opinion. And so the chances of a viewer who spends 20 minutes or 15 minutes just turning on a so-called news broadcast – the likelihood is that that viewer is going to consume, be exposed to opinion, not to facts, and um, but may not know it. And that's, I think, at the heart of uh, a slice of the problem. The economics of the, of the market play a big role here. So as margins shrink, um, news organizations look to produce whatever is kind of cheapest and easiest to produce. And commentary is a lot easier than doing a deep investigative journalism piece. And having a piece that blends some facts and some opinion is, again, cheaper than having to do the deep investigative journalism 
Um, so while I agree that your idea is, is a really good one, I think that a lot of media companies would would push back on that a little bit because they've shifted toward they've shifted, and this is especially on television, shifted towards this commentary model because it not only um, makes the news more punchy and gets people watching, but also um, is a lot cheaper and easier for them to produce. Yeah, I understood, but your your answer absolutely frames the importance of something like that. So, you know, like it, we're we're trying to boil an ocean here, and there's an awful lot of elements going on that have built up for years. So, um, but I, but I think this um, self description, just as in using Michael Tannenbaum's comment in the, in the drug world, there are labels on things, and and they're really very helpful. Um, so, anyway. Thanks, Joe. Uh, we actually have an email question from Clara Gill, which is along the same lines. In my humble view, she says, much of this truth decay issue is driven by the need for media to earn a profit to stay in business. Sensationalism and political bias seem to dominate most presentations, feeding the decay versus mediating it. Perversely, the general public seems to enjoy and demand these presentations, yeah. fueling the perpetuation of truth decay. Much as I hate to think that government might help reduce decay, should we look to a BBC model? Well, many people have the very same sense as Claire that something's changed in the character or the tone, the actual content of, of um, information provided even by longstanding reputable news sources. And, uh, but, but that hasn't been analytically demonstrated in a, in a convincing, uh, scientifically valid fashion. That's what we're attempting to do. We have a, mm -hmm. a technique that uh, we, we know works, um, and we've, uh, Jennifer has the details, but we now have decades of transcripts of uh, news broadcasts as well as um, news stories from a half a dozen or more uh, both national and regional newspapers, and we think we'll be able to conclusively analyze the uh, whether or not there's been a change in content to make it more sensational and so on. Certainly the economics of the industry would suggest that's the direction. All right, we have four minutes to go. We have two callers on, and my math suggests that's two minutes each. Shall we go to the phones? Our next question comes from the line of Chris Verlas. Please go ahead. Yes, uh, great report. Um, question on leadership. How much of this is a lack of really effective leadership? So in, in my opinion, what I've observed is the private sector was taken off the playing field post-financial crisis. So any leaders in the corporate world who at least had the accountability of profit and loss you know, no longer had a voice. And it was replaced by uh, media, sports, figures from those realms and then also a political uh, political leaders that you know we've seen a steady decline in what words mean um, and what they you know what they say, and so there seems to be no more there seems to be no public figures that we can look to to speak truth or have accountability to speak truth. So I think this is related to the fourth trend in our um, conception of truth decay, which is declining trust in institutions. But what we're really focusing there on is not just declining trust in institutions, but declining trust in, in information providers. And information providers can be one person or it can be um, a whole group of people. And so I think that we would agree that that's occurring. Um, the question is why, and that's what that pro project that we're looking at um, – looking at how trust is declined in information providers um, and institutions that provide those, that information. One thing I would say is that I think 
I think many of the drivers that we are um, that we highlight in the report are contributing to this problem. So the decline in trust in you know traditional um, gatekeepers or figures of of authority and trust. The reason that that has been declining is a is a kind of a the result of a confluence of all these different factors: political polarization and changes in the information space, and the extent to which access to information has been democratized. So previously, we had figures that we trusted as sources of truth or of facts. They had privileged access to that information, and now everybody has access to that information. And so that has changed the dynamics and removed what were traditionally thought of as gatekeepers from their positions. Um, And so I think that that's part of the dynamic that you're talking about, and that's something that we definitely um, try to get at in the report and that we're interested in looking at further. I can't name five people that I think speak truth and are motivated to speak truth. I mean, I find that very troubling. I can't actually name people that don't have an agenda or a vested interest in spinning or marketing some other narrative apart from truth. Thanks, Chris. I think we have time for one last question on the phones. And our next question comes from the line of Alan Laverson. Please go ahead. Have you ever thought that maybe the culture of the the very nature of the average American has changed to the point where they don't really want facts. They want to kind of hear what they believe in. And so it looks like everyone believes that, you know, that when you take the, the surveys, everyone wants more facts because you can hear all kinds of, of things on the political spectrum because there are just so many sources of information. But anything that doesn't agree with them, they'll, you know, obviously they'll say, well, there are obviously it's fake news, it's truth decay or whatever. And so it looks like everyone is looking for more facts. But in fact, you know, is it possible the nature of the very American has changed in the last 20 years that they can't take the truth? Alan, that's not actually outside the scope of our research. There is a large section on cognitive bias that is one of the drivers here, but it's only one. uh, That's the way we're wired, the the uh, um, difficulty people have uh, seeking out and processing information that doesn't conform to their personal experience. But we also go beyond that and uh, talk about the three factors we've mentioned that exacerbate cognitive biases. But when we turn to solutions, uh, there are some approaches that have some promise, not in eliminating cognitive bias, but in helping people train themselves to overcome them. And that's something we want to explore more more deeply. If I could just say one one thing, you know, I think I think there is some um, accuracy to what you're saying that people uh, may not want facts um, anymore. They may not want the truth. They may just want their experiences and opinions. But I think part of the reason that we were motivated to write this report is that we think that mentality has consequences. Um, because once it spreads to your political leadership, it starts eroding political and civil discourse and has implications for policymaking. And so our one of the things that we're trying to do with this report is underscore the ways in which that mentality has serious consequences and try to think about ways to address those consequences and move back towards a situation where people do want facts. Great question, Alan. Thank you, Michael and Jennifer, for your time and insights. Thank you to our Policy Circle and RAND Next members and friends for joining us on this call. If you'd like more information on the report and upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast, please visit RAND.org. This concludes our call. Thanks for participating. Have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, Visit us online at www.rand.org events.